like local EMS well, as well? So I, I, um, I worked for Brown EMS for uh, three years, mostly volunteer, although there were some paid special shifts, like all of the, uh, like spring weekend stuff and commencement weekend stuff is all paid. Uh, everything else was volunteer. And it was like 10 bucks an hour, which for a college student is awesome. Okay. Um, you know, don't ask what I did with that money. <laughs> it was nothing good. Yeah. Well, and then when I graduated, I moved home with my parents and I volunteered for my hometown fire department EMS. Okay. Uh, which also a lot of fun. It got me a little into firehouse culture, which is interesting, not totally friendly to women, but still an important part of the community. Yeah. Uh, we had a couple of really big nursing homes in our town. So, you know, there's a lot of that, you know, we have, you know, a nice, you know, a nice stretch of the LIE that went through our town. So some car crashes. Okay. Um, so a little more, you know, a little more exciting stuff than what we'd see on a college campus. And then once I moved to New Jersey, I, I guess the last two summers I worked at a concert venue. Okay. Uh, which was a lot like college. <laughs> so a lot of, a lot of alcohol poisoning, I'm guessing. Yeah. Like injuries lot. related to being drunk. Exactly. Lots of, uh, lots of, you know, scraped knees, you know, bleeding foreheads and vomiting everywhere. Great. <laughs> yeah. It ended up being, it, it was really fun. It was really fun. Uh, what was, you know, what's funny is that, you know, also 40 year olds can drink too much and get sick, which you wouldn't expect. Um, you know, but then you get the other side of the coin. You have the, we had a, I think it's called One Revolution. It's not One Direction, but it's another band that starts with one. I think One Revolution. Okay. Um, that's a similar teeny bopper sort of thing. And we had the, you know, really drunk 14 and 15 year olds, Lord. which is horrible. That is, I, I did not drink in high school. I didn't either, except with my family. I mean, I had like, I had like glasses of wine at Passover, but I yeah. had like, like one glass of wine total over a whole night. And I was, you know, not a tiny person. So I was fine. Like, <laughs> yeah, I never drank to excess with my family. Right. So maybe a couple times I visited my sister up at MIT when I was a junior or senior in high school. Yeah. But I never really drank with my friends. I just. Mm. Yeah, my friends were not. I am not sure, but I would bet that most of my high school friends still do not drink. Like. <laughs> That's fair. Mine drank. My friends drank. They smoked pot, and I was just not into it. I was too good for that. <laughs> uh, High school, but yeah, that's that's crazy though that you're that at the like if I if I were at a concert when I was fourteen, I wouldn't even know how to obtain alcohol. I was and, so and, and one of the one of the craziest parts is that you know you can't. Essentially, you can't transport a kid without their parents' permission. Oh. Occasionally, if they were, 
not super drunk, we'd say, okay, like, if your parents can, you know, if your parents can get here within the next hour, we'll just hang on to you and, you know, release you to their care. But there are some parents who would say, you know, why are you bothering me? Like, just let my kid have fun. Oh, God. What? Really? Because your kid is unconscious on the floor and we're concerned she can't protect her airway. So we're going to take her to the emergency room. Okay. So you, I would assume, yeah, there's some kind of like, if there's a, if there's a belief like that this is a life or death potential situation, you can transport without. Absolutely. I mean, it, it's called implied consent where we assume that, you know, if we find a child passed out on the side of the road, we can assume that their parents would probably consent to us treating them. It's just like with an adult. If we find an adult passed out, we can assume that they would consent to treatment. Um, it gets a little funny with adults when they're intoxicated because you can't legally consent to refuse treatment. You, you can't legally refuse treatment. And so if someone is intoxicated, it's as if they were unconscious in that, you know, we have to treat them anyway. Okay. I actually, I vaguely remember that from, like, back in the day when, um, I think my mother was involved in some advocacy when they didn't used to carry EpiPens on, um, oh. this is, like, when I was a kid. Oh, that must so, have been terrifying. Well, and so I was told, you and I want to say, actually, maybe even Fiona told me, like, the implied consent ended up being, like, Oh, we found an EpiPen in this person's bag. They consent to us using it. Oh, yeah, that's that's totally fair. I it's would like I would yeah, if you know, now I know most places do it, but um carry EpiPens. But yeah, yeah it's like no, yeah, you I, have to, I, I consent to this. <laughs> yeah. Yes, now, <laughs> yeah, exactly. We're not gonna like wait till you wake up to get you to sign a form. Right. You know, it's, it's our judgment. Yeah, it's our judgment call. It's pretty hard to, uh, you know, win money for malpractice, especially in pre-hospital care. Right. You know, usually in the hospital, ho you know, hospitals, doctors are more willing to settle than go to court. But, right. you know, EMTs are very unlikely to get sued. And if they are, it's like they really messed up. So outside of, um, outside of like the college or concert thing, um, yeah, anything particularly interesting that you saw? Um, there was a lot of interesting stuff. I mean, so most of the time, like 90% of our time, our job is glorified taxi driver. Our job is to show up at someone's house on the worst day of their life and, um, you know, put on a nice outfit and show up in a shiny truck, make sure your shoes are, shoes are shine and like take charge and kind of calm them down. Okay. Uh, while we take them to the hospital, usually not a lot of medical treatment involved, evaluate them enough to know that it's not a huge emergency, but still like comfort them and their family. Sure. Um, you know, maybe probably not even 10% of the time. Um, it is actually an emergency. Okay. And that can be, you know, anything from, 
let's see, you know, I, I've had, I've responded to three cardiac arrests in my career. Oh, wow. Um, of those, two were really emergencies. One was, uh, we had shown up at a nursing home and the staff had said, well, we checked on him an hour ago and he was fine, but they hadn't checked on him an hour ago and he was not fine and hadn't been for a while. But, you know, legally we have to, we have to do the workup. We have to try our best, try to resuscitate. Uh, you know, and in New York, you can't, EMTs can't declare death unless it's a really, really obvious situation. Okay. And there's a list, you know, that includes things like decapitation or decomposition. Okay. Which... Uh, so we, you know, worked him up. We did CPR. We took him to the hospital. They also worked him up, declared him dead about a half hour after we got to the hospital. Uh, actually, totally interesting story. Um, got to the hospital, take him into a trauma room. Uh, the third year resident, uh, who was in charge of the case was none other than, uh, Zach Ginsburg. Oh, wow. Yeah. Who worked, he, I had seen him a few times. He was, uh, he did his residency on Long Island. Okay. Uh, I didn't know that. You know, they kind of, uh, it was, it had to have been the first week in July, which is when the, the new residents come in. And so it was kind of a good opportunity to practice the routine and they let me, um, ventilate him, you know, squeeze the bag. Uh huh. They let me do that. So I got to see the whole workup, which was really cool, but they declared him dead about a half hour later. You know, he was, he was pretty much cold when we had gotten to him. So not really an emergency. The other two had better results. That's good. One was an 80-something-year-old woman whose family called us about three days later and said that, you know, she was still alive and awake and talking, which is both exciting and, you know, pretty unlikely. That doesn't often happen. Sure, yeah, with someone that old. and Yeah. Uh, And then the other one, so I didn't actually, I was not the first on scene. I was the, the second crew on scene, so I got to help with, you know, what we call packaging the patient, rolling him onto a gurney, strapping him down tight and, you know, shoving him onto a truck while the first crew can, you know, so the first crew can maintain CPR. Right. Um, this was a like 40 something man okay. who actually, he called us up about a week later and was like, Hey guys, you should come visit me in the hospital. <laughs> uh, and so the first crew actually went and visited him and he went home a little while after that. Okay. So that's really cool. That also doesn't happen a lot. Yeah. So we definitely get some some really exciting stuff. Um, I would say in addition to that, the other exciting thing can be special events. Uh, you know me. I like logistics. Okay. Yeah. I like organization. And so getting to be part of the medical response in super huge events, even if there are no medical emergencies, can be a lot of fun. Uh, you know, at college, it was the big spring weekend events or the big campus dance uh, events, you know, commencement. Um, yeah, that's actually, that was something I was thinking about. I just went to um, pick up my cap and gown and um, they're, you know, they're setting up everything. 
And I was like, especially because at least like for undergrad, it was, they closed off a lot of the area, but like it was a lot more accessible. Like now in the middle of New York City, it's a pretty closed campus. Like, how are you going to get people if someone passes out because it's super hot? Which I don't think it will be, but, like, I'm sure it's happened. Oh, yeah. Uh, you you can get pretty far on foot, although, you know, agencies with the resources will opt for off-road vehicles because it's really fun. Uh, <laughs> to, like have driven a golf, a golf a- cart, and it's super fun. Yeah, we at Brown we rented a couple of we rented a few um, Gator John Deere Gators, the six little off road vehicles that were especially outfitted with a stretcher on the back. Uh, We borrowed I don't know if we paid for them. I'm sure there was some money exchanged somewhere uh, from Rhode Island DMAT, which is the Disaster Medical Assistance Team, the the statewide organization that you know for example flew down to New York after 9-11 to help with the rescue efforts and, you know, that does that sort of thing that uh, went around and and vaccinated all the children during the the swine flu epidemic, if you you remember that. Yeah, I remember that. I I got vaccinated. (laughs) Yep, that was, that's another, that's another one of the, the fun things that I've gotten to take part in, the Rhode Island vaccination campaign. Oh, okay. Uh, as an EMT, what can you Basically do? Basically anyone who was capable of holding a needle. They gave you like a quick couple hour training and sent us around oh, wow. to the schools in the state. And so a lot of states, and I think states that are more spread out, have to do this, distributed the medications to doctors and pediatricians and pharmacies. Mm-hmm. Island, since it's so small, just trained about, you know, a few hundred people to just go to schools and volunteer and administer them. We actually ended up with the highest vaccination rate amongst kids, which was pretty cool. Oh, that's amazing. Like 86% of kids under 18 were vaccinated. Huh. That's so cool. Yeah, it was. It was a lot of fun. That's another example of, of a thing that, you know, you get to do as an EMT. Yeah. Uh, that was, swine flu was 2009, right? Yeah. Yeah, it was... Yeah, because I got I was still at Brown, so I got um, vaccinated through there. Yeah, it was fifth year. Um, it was fall of fifth year. Okay, yeah. Uh, I guess I should ask my siblings, but I can't remember. I think Shoshana might have been in high school by then, but also, like, my parents are pretty good about getting them vaccinated on time, and my brother is a high-risk person, so we tended to get... Like even when there were flu shortages, flu there were shortages. enough. There were enough vaccines distributed to doctors to get the high risk kids first. Right. But most kids were vaccinated through their schools through this campaign. Yeah, because um, even when there was a shortage, like once when I was in high school, I got the shot because I lived in the house with someone with type one diabetes. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, I guess I'm considered high risk now. Yeah. But. I obviously got my flu shot before I got pregnant. Needed to get all my ducks in a row. Yep. Beforehand. Yeah. Ah, I didn't know that. I guess I I've never asked the people who like give me shots. So when I've gotten it through. Yeah. Well, it usually it depends on the state uh, for who's allowed to give the vaccines. Uh, I always assumed it was nurses, but I never actually asked because Rhode Island is especially lax. 
in that their EMTs are allowed to do considerably more than in most states. Okay, well, relax, but also I know, you know, there's same kind of nursing shortages that there are in many places, and... Sure, sure, absolutely. So it happened, it, it happened to work. I mean, the, the, you know, school vaccination campaign only worked because Rhode Island is, you know, this big. Right. <laughs> easy to, True, yeah. that wouldn't work in a case where you can't, like, deploy people to any, like, from a centralized place to anywhere. Yeah, to everywhere in the entire state. Huh. Yeah, it was, it was, uh, it was pretty cool. Yeah, that's, so that's, like, it's an example. You know, there have been some, like, really big concert events that have required, you know, a dozen EMTs, you know, the a couple of years ago there was a Nicki Minaj concert at the the art center where I was working, oh. and it required, you know, a dozen EMTs or more. And instead of just having us running around in pairs treating patients, we had a whole triage system where, you know, the cops would call us in, we'd go out with a wheelchair, grab the patient, take them back to, you know, our central medical tent. We had a tent set up. Um, where they could be evaluated by a couple more EMTs and then decide either, you know, all right, send them to the hospital right away. And the hospital was two minutes away, really easy transport, um, where, you know, drivers were waiting on standby or have them be monitored until their parents could pick them up uh, so that the first EMTs could go back out with a wheelchair and, you know, grab some more people. I think we ended up probably taking you know, 40 people to the hospital that night. Oh, wow. A significant portion of them under 18. So that's crazy. Uh, Warp Tour is always a big event at the Art Center, which is a whole day. Yeah. That's actually one of the only ones that did not involve alcohol because it's the whole day. It's usually younger folks, mm -hmm. and they're really strict about checking people before they get in. Okay. And so there tends to not be a ton of, of alcohol issues. It's usually heat. Okay. That makes With sense. With that one, you know, there's a, similarly, we have a, a giant tent set up that we borrow from the state uh, that is air conditioned and has beds lined up and we have a few doctors working there for the day. Okay. And so only rarely do you actually have to transport people to the hospital, you know, minor heat exha exhaustion. You just, uh, you know, throw them on the back of a, of a, a gator or the equivalent and take them down to this tent where they can get an IV and be watched over by a doctor for a few hours. You know, a lot of that kind of event is going to have a lot of heat problems and a lot of mosh pit problems. Got it. So, like, a lot of bloody noses. Uh, and then, you know, another event that I worked, which is also probably not your scene, uh, was the Pope's visit to Philadelphia. Also not my scene, but that's actually really interesting. Like it was, it was incredible. It was such a fun day. Uh, I, this, my, my job at the, in New Jersey, they just asked for a bunch of folks to volunteer to work for, you know, one of a couple of days. Uh, you know, we grabbed an ambulance met up at a central meeting place in New Jersey, grabbed about 12 different ambulances and crews from across New Jersey to create, like, the New Jersey Ambulance Task Force, 
and, you know, went to a quick training. It was mostly on security issues. There was a lot of like, we had to sign up and get our, have a background check ahead of time to do this. Uh, you know, special walkie talkies that were super secure with, that all had to be cleared ahead of time, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, learning the procedures for the event and then driving down to Philly, which was about probably less than an hour from where we were, we were starting where the ambulance company was, was headquartered uh, and then splitting us up from there and finding out last minute where we were going to go. I ended up spending the morning uh, in Camden, right across the river at the Campbell's soup factory was the staging headquarters for the uh, New Jersey State Police. Uh, essentially sitting and waiting in case the shit hit the fan, you know, across the river in Philly, and there was some huge disaster that we needed to respond to from out of the city. Okay. Uh, which, you know, involved, like, a Red Cross lunch station. And helicopters coming in and out. So we kind of hung around all morning. And then in the afternoon, uh, I think the Pope was running mass in the early afternoon. And so we actually then drove to Philly, to the city, mm-hmm. uh, you know, getting to drive the wrong way down bridges that were closed to traffic. I think all traffic in the city was just stopped completely. Probably. Um, I know when the Pope came here, uh, I think... Well, I know that they that was when the like Uber for helicopters like was a thing. Yeah, that's crazy. I was too far out of town to be affected, but yeah. It was it was huge. They ended up you know, parking in a giant line of probably 30, 40 ambulances from Pennsylvania and New Jersey, you know, getting new training, getting a backpack full of supplies and like stationed in different locations. So we were sitting at one of the security gates, you know, just monitoring the crowds and taking anyone who had difficulties. Okay. You know, medical problems as they were like waiting in line to get in. There were hundreds of thousands of people and many, many of them did not even get in by the time mass started. They were very upset about that. Yeah. Um, It was just a cool giant event. We were there. You know, it was probably a 7 a.m. to 10 p.m. when we got back to the station. Long day. We did get paid, though. It was, uh, I don't I think I got, like, twelve fifty an hour. Oh, wow. Uh, so not a huge sum of money. I did not do it for the money. Yeah, no, it sounds really cool. It was a really cool experience. They gave everyone a challenge coin at the end of the day, so I now have a, a little coin that says, like, Papal Visit 2000. What was it 2015? Oh, that's so cool. I'm yeah, just really cool experience. I have a T-shirt that says, <laughs> you know, Papal Visit EMS 2016. Huh, that's really cool. I'm guessing yeah. that was mostly, that was, you were involved, or a lot of the action was, like, on the front end, as, as you said, with logistics, and it was probably not too much. Yeah, it's a lot of logistics being prepared in case some crazy disaster happened. Right. But also a lot of scraped knees, old people standing in line for too long without eating or drinking anything. Right. Uh, Yeah. 
a few people pretending to be sick so that they can not have to wait in line to get in through security. Yeah. That's not not a huge yeah, not not a whole bunch of medical emergencies. It was mostly just just uh hanging out. We were hanging out with some of the uh the secret service. Oh, some, so cool. You know, military folks. It was just a really cool event, a really cool thing to see. Wow, that is really awesome. And yeah, it's it's something that's easy to forget about, but um like whenever we had a big conference at work, and granted there would be tons of doctors there and we had like staff physicians who did not work as practicing physicians for staff but like were licensed physicians. Um like if you have a if you have several thousand people for, you know, a day or several days, like there will be something medical that will come up and you need to have something for it. Sure. <laughs> sure. Yeah, I mean that's yeah, you take for granted that that needs to be considered all the time and you kind of uh you know there's a certain type of person who uh is always thinking about that you know this is this is this is what tim wants to do for a living be the person who plans and runs and then sits on the sidelines while everyone else does the work for this stuff he was here at the pittsburgh marathon last week oh you know, that's another that's another thing that always needs an organized medical response, any sort of big athletic event. All right. So yes, we've talked a bit about the role in healthcare, but we'll cover that again. Um, so what kind of training do you need to be an EMT? Uh, very, very little. <laughs> um, I took a summer course. Okay. It was... Maybe Tuesday and Thursday evenings for four hours and Saturday mornings for four hours for like three months. Okay. So, um, you know, different states have different regulations, but it's something like 120 hours of training. So okay. surprisingly little training. Uh, I had just taken human anatomy. And so I had to, let's say, dial back my understanding of human anatomy to really excel in EMT school. It's a lot of, you know, a lot of basics. Okay. It's a lot of... You took, like, real anatomy, though, right? Yeah. Human. Okay, because I've taken, like, anatomy for physicists, and it's like, <laughs> do you know where the bones are and what they are named sometimes? That's, that's fair. That's fair. That, so it sounds like EMT is kind of like that, where they're like, know where the bones are, like, know what organs are what... That is yeah, it's, it's, it's like, no, what organs are, you know, it's, I don't have to know, what, I don't have to know what the liver does, but I need to know that the liver is, um, you know, in the upper right quadrant of the abdomen. That's pretty much what I need to know. Yeah. There, or that if someone's in a car crash and is, you know, has a lot of pain there, like that's what it could be. And even then, like, we can't do a whole lot about it, you know? You need to know that if someone's skin is yellow, they probably have a liver problem. Right. You know, or if the 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 whites of their eyes are yellow. Okay. Uh, means they probably have a liver problem. If their skin is yellow and they smell like alcohol, then they have a lot more problems than just a liver problem, but also probably a liver problem. Okay. You know, but we don't need to know the pathways through which 
the liver, you know, helps you digest your food or helps filter toxins. Right. That makes sense. Like, yeah, you're focused on the. Yeah. I mean, a lot of, a lot of being an EMT is, it doesn't really matter why we do what we do. Just know the right things to do in any given situation and be able to do them, you know, calmly and like regularly. Okay. That's actually, that's a good point is the calmness. Do you get any, in the training, do you get, like, crisis management anything, or? Not really. Self-select? Yeah, it's probably self-select. You you need to be a certain kind of crazy person to enjoy that sort of thing. But it's also, it comes with practice, and it just comes, it's sort of the culture. Okay. It's a lot of... You know, I guess, like, when I said firehouse culture earlier, a lot of that is, you know, we're going to sit around and make offensive comments and insult each other for 23 hours a day. But, you know, the moment you hear the tones on the radio, like, that stops and everyone, like, grows up immediately and does their job and does it calmly. And then... Afterwards, you all go out for pizza and joke about whatever happened, even if it's something that, you know, isn't really funny. And that's just how you deal with it. That makes sense. Yeah. Do you have, um, so part of the, um, is there like, not a practicum, but like, are you yeah. on supervision of someone? There's a practical example. Okay. So the first... So the the course generally uh, has a CPR course built in, just the like regular American Heart Association CPR for BLS providers, which is all healthcare, you know, all athletic coaches, you know, have to do a similar thing. Um, I think doctors even have to do it too, just like basic CPR. Yeah, they have to get certified every. I forget yeah. how much you could. I'm sure Tim would know. Um, but yeah, every. Yeah, every two years, and then at the end of the course, there's a written exam. Okay. And then there's a practical exam. Okay. And the written exam, you know, questions range from. You know, what's the first thing to consider whenever you walk on a scene? And the answer is always, you know, prioritize your own safety. Always. Uh, to, you know, you get on scene of a car crash. There's someone, you know, who is not bleeding, who's not breathing and they're bleeding everywhere and they have bones sticking out of their leg. What do you do first? Um, Often the answer is prioritize your own safety, <laughs> throw on a pair of gloves first, but, you know, prioritize, um, you know, airway o- over almost everything else. Although if someone has a massive hemorrhage also, you know, you need to address that before you address the airway. So it's kind of like always airway first, unless there's some, you know, unless they're like on fire. Okay. That seems reasonable. Yeah. You know, always make sure you keep their spine in a neutral position. Right. Unless there's a risk of them being on fire, in which case, you know, get them out of the fire. Right. Safely. You know, so, you know, written questions like that, 
even even things like what is the standard dosage of an EpiPen? Uh, or like I don't actually know. Point three. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I don't remember. Actually, it's been uh, a while. Though. That's embarrassing. But I don't know. I just know stick it in you. Yeah. <laughs> How to stick it in you? I'm I want to say three milligrams, but I would have to look up. It is. It's point three point three milligrams, one to one thousand. Yep. Point three milligram epinephrine auto injector. Yep, and the kids' one is 0.15. Okay. Uh, in Rhode Island, they actually have it in a vial that you can draw up in a syringe. Okay, yeah, which I know is not atypical for, like, the reason that, because ep- EpiPens, as you probably know, are super expensive also. Um, yeah, I've heard plenty about that, and they and they expire pretty quickly. Yep, Um. so yeah, the reason why they have the EpiPen is so that if I order takeout right now and they screw up the order, I, a person with no EMT training, can, like, get it into me so that I can call 911. <laughs> That's fair. So, yeah, if someone actually knows how to draw up a vial and do it, that is probably much cheaper and just as effective. <laughs> well, there's also knowing how to do it. I'm sure you could draw some, draw fluid up into a syringe from a vial, the question is, would you be able to in that moment? Right. Which is the <laughs> other thing. Like, faster is a lot. Yeah. There's a reason why, yeah, EpiPens are like that, but insulin is in a vial because you're usually doing it because you're like, this is what I need, but I'm fine right now. I just need to take it now, so I'll continue to be fine. Yeah, exactly. Although even, even that, um, even injectable insulin is like on its way out because pumps are so much better. To some extent, there's actually my brother just switched off the pump back to injectable. It was just not working as well for him. Um, it depends on who you are, yeah. I ha- yeah, I haven't heard that. That's I mean, any I, I don't either details, but yeah, it's crazy. It's like it's got to be so challenging. I can't even imagine. Yeah, um, but yeah, some people find that the um, that actually doing it in like discrete doses instead of like a continuous thing and like planning your meals a bit more um, is just better for control. Okay. That's fair. That's fair. Like be playing a more active role in the whole process. Yeah. I think that's part of it. I think there's other factors, Um, but it's true that the pump, like pumps are a lot more common and yeah, that drawing stuff up from a vial is a skill. (laughs) Yeah. So, well, so that's like, like a dosage is a question they could ask us on that test. Okay. So dosages and... Um, yeah, and then the practical uh, very slightly state-to-state. I took my original course in New York. Okay. Although I helped teach the EMT class that was offered at Brown one summer, so I got a little taste of that, which is similar. And generally you have, like, one big trauma patient, one big medical patient, and then a few different little stations that include things like... Um, open up a new oxygen tank and put on the regulator and get it to work. Uh, or, you know, splint somebody's arm. And usually, you know, and for, for each of the different stations, there's a, a series of points you need to get. You know, so there might be 20 different things you can do, and you need to do 17 of them to pass. 
uh, although they're usually critical failure points that if you miss, if you, for example, don't put on gloves and check for safety at the start, you, um, you automatically fail. Okay. You know, if you, um, if you, uh, I'm trying to think of another critical fail. If you roll a patient over without supporting their cervical spine, you know, then, then that's a critical fail. Or you try to open their airway by tilting their head, but they, you know, could have a spinal injury. You know, that kind of thing. All right. So I guess, um, what got you interested in being an EMT? Well... I uh, was going to go study abroad in Africa. And, you know, we all know what Africa is like, <laughs> you know, big and scary, and we don't know anything about it. So I wanted to figure I could take a first aid class, and that wouldn't hurt. And someone, probably Fiona, said, you might as well just take an EMT course. Okay. So I did. I figured I never actually had to work as an EMT. I would just take the course for fun. So I took the course as part of the graduation requirement. I had to do a ride along with an actual EMS agency. Okay. So, you know, of course, given where I was located, I ended up spending a day with FDNY EMS in Queens. Oh, wow. And I just had such an amazing time with the same, just like the same combination of like, just like dicking around for a while and then going to help someone with a major medical emergency and then going to a car crash and then going to get Chinese food and then passing out in the back of the truck because you just ate too much Chinese food and then going to save someone's life and just kind of back and forth for 12 hours. And I just had such an awesome time that I had to get into it as soon as I got back to Brown after study abroad, which I did. I'm really grateful I did. Obviously, I met some really special people. Yep. <laughs> That's my answer when when someone um, when someone on a, at a Brown interview asks like, "What's the the greatest thing that I did, or the the you know the best moment at Brown?" Obviously, when I met my husband on <laughs> an ambulance, working together. You know, you ask him the first time we. Um, spend time together. It was the uh, sex power god. Oh my god! <laughs> uh, you know Brown's annual naked dance party. Yep. I can't believe Bill O'Reilly got shafted. By the way, <laughs> I know <laughs> it was. Uh... But Tim and I ended up working together, being partnered together for that uh, shift, and he. It was just a hilarious dude. And we always talk about, we always reminisce about Banana Hammock Kid, which is the most impressively vomit-covered human being I've ever seen in my life. And granted, I haven't actually had a baby yet, so I don't know yet, but just everything from, like, chin to banana hammock is covered in vomit. Oh, my God. And I don't understand how you could get vomit, like, here, because, like, physically, how 
I don't understand, but it, it was everywhere. I don't either. Uh, Tim managed to swing it so that we did not actually have to physically come in contact with him and dumped him on another crew. <laughs> but we, we still reminisce about Banana Hammock Kid. Oh my god. <laughs> that was my experience with Brown EMS. Met some cool people, made some, you know, lifelong friends. Uh, you know, and it's something that I hope to at least do a little bit occasionally. Obviously, I don't know what my next couple years will look like. Right. You know, it's once an EMT, always an EMT. Did I ever show you my EMS tattoo? No, I don't think you did. Uh, I have a, let's see, I'm going to put you on full screen so I can see what I'm actually showing you. Um, there we go. <laughs> <laughs> it's on my side. Oh, cool. Oh, that's really cool. I like it. Thank you. I got that when I graduated from, I guess when I started teaching and I was like, oh, I won't have time to do EMS anymore. Um, which I obviously still did EMS, <laughs> but it was kind of like a, <laughs> <laughs> it was just kind of like a, a nod to end of one chapter in my life and start of the other. Cool. So, you know, once an EMT, always an EMT. Yeah. It definitely sounds like it's a pretty... Like, well, you mentioned the, like, firehouse culture and, like, a really tight-knit community, which I guess it would yeah. have to be, like, people, you know. You have, to, you have to trust these people. Right. Especially, I assume people tend to, like, switch off for things like driving. And so it's like. Oh, sure. Yeah, you definitely yeah. have to trust someone with your life when they're driving you around. And, and you're, you're, like, unsecured and, unsecured. you know, stabilizing someone. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but it's also. You know, any any emergency response is going to require a lot of moving pieces that work best when one person is in charge and giving directions. And you have to, you know, trust that everyone knows what they're doing, that if you tell someone to do something, they know what to do. Or if someone tells you what to do, that you can trust them. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I'm glad if I ever need to call emergency services that they, you know, I want them to trust each other. And be yeah. Committed. Yeah. They'll be good people. They'll trust each other. Nice. Uh, so, yeah, I guess. Um, so the last like big question is, how does it fit into healthcare at large? So you've talked a bit about um, like there's often, well, you're bringing the patients to the hospital. Usually you're coordinating with um, doctors at emergency events. Uh, anyone else? Yeah, generally we're the big connection between home and a healthcare facility. Makes sense. So that, you know, that could be taking someone to the hospital. It also could be taking someone from their nursing home to their dialysis appointment, you know, through a private ambulance company, which I never did, but Tim worked in for a while. Okay. And so it's kind of like, a connection point so that if you, when you get to the hospital, you don't have to get up and explain what's wrong. We can, you know, do all the, the legwork. Right. Uh, I like to think about, I like to think of EMS as like the first step towards socialized healthcare. Huh. Cause we don't have room on our paperwork for your insurance information. You know, we will take your name down, 
And depending on, you know, a lot of organizations do not charge patients. Some do, um, but I have no part in that. I'll write down their name. Uh, I will write down their social security number if they give it to me, if they're conscious and if they're sober enough to know what it is. Right. Uh, and they may get a bill later, but I don't care. You know, I've never, I've never turned down a patient because they didn't look like they had money. Right. You know, I've worked with a lot of people, you know, when I, I spent a few nights with Providence Fire Department EMS uh, just for fun because I had a connection. And, you know, we never turned down the drunk guy who gets picked up twice a week for being drunk and disorderly and then sent to the hospital, you know, obviously is not going to be able to pay for his healthcare. Right. Yeah. That's actually, that's a cool way of thinking about it. And I guess emergency medicine is the case where it's like everyone, like if you need emergency medical care, that comes from, you'll be able to get it. Yeah. you know granted the care does vary from hospital to hospital from region to region right uh pittsburgh has this really weird scenario where there are two big health insurance companies that run their own hospitals okay like hfos or like no just competing companies weird okay yeah weird that each have over time teamed up with a separate hospital network. And so if you end up at the wrong hospital, they'll stabilize you and then immediately ship you off. To the other hospital or? To the other hospital. Okay, good. Not like, okay, like, good enough to go home. We're not like sending you out of the city, but. That's good. It's weird. It's really weird. There are a few hospitals that take both, although I believe there's a scheduled timeline to like make that not the case. Huh, that's So it's you know, like you will get care. If you are having a heart attack, you will get treated. You know, if you are bleeding to death, you will get stabilized and treated, but once you are stable, they will send you off. Yeah, I'm just think yeah. I know, I don't know. So Madison had like three major HMOs and it was a pretty big HMO town um, for a lot of reasons, which was great. I loved my healthcare there. Mm-hmm. And yet the, um, my network was not the one that had the most convenient urgent care. I fortunately never had to go to the ER, but I did need urgent care a couple of times. And um I don't, I think there was a very small surcharge for going, like, in the same city to a different... Oh, I see. Like, mm-hmm. urgent care out of network, but it was, like, maybe $10 extra than had you gone for urgent care elsewhere, at like, at your HMO. I guess what I have I don't know what is... hospitalization would have been, because I, I was fortunately not hospitalized, but... I guess what I have is an HMO, they just don't call it that because... I don't know. People get scared of HMOs after the whole nineties thing. Um, I agree. I think it's the best idea. I'm a teacher. I'm all about like education and community, like everybody hold hands and sing Kumbaya together. I think it's a great idea, but I've found it's awesome to 
you know, I'm, I'm, when we moved here, I wanted to see all my doctors immediately over the summer before school started. So, you know, I saw a general practitioner and OBGYN and a dermatologist and they all, you know, I just had to fill out all the paperwork once, you know, they, they all had my medical information and didn't need to ask me over and over again, which is really nice. And being able to have, you know, one online portal that has all my health records and anytime a new test pops up, anytime a new bill pops up, <laughs> you know, and they even have their own freestanding urgent care centers, you know, probably two of them within 20 minutes of here. Yeah, nice. And, you know, plenty of hospitals. Uh, and so it, it kind of functions like it, like an HMO, which is nice, you know, in the hospital's. I guess I don't know who owns who, but like the health insurance is like it's it's local ish health insurance company. Yeah. Um, it's you know, it's bleeding outwards, but it, it was local <laughs> at the start, um, which kind of covers, you know, a whole lot. It's pretty good insurance. So I guess it kind of works like an HMO. That's really good. That also helps with me deciding to not go back to work next year is that Tim's insurance is awesome. Also, yeah. So I don't have to have a job for that. He pays no premiums. That's awesome. Like, still co-pays, you know. Man, pregnancy is expensive. I hit my deductible in the by the end of January this year. God. Yeah. I bet, yeah, because your regular appointments, that's... That is the one thing I do. Well, there are many things I like about working in healthcare, but like, yeah, working, I will have really good insurance in a couple of months. <laughs> yeah. I had really good insurance really nice. back in Madison um, for similar reasons. I had, I think I had premiums, but they were very low. And granted, I am like, other than the EpiPen, um, I'm like pretty much what insurers want and that like young healthy person goes for checkups that's about it gets sinus infections once in a while <laughs> so i guess so you're like the connector to the ho like home to hospital as you said um and you mentioned like you work with health organizations to vaccinate sometimes i'm trying to think of anything else that you would maybe work um, we're almost never end care. Like we're, we're never like the end of, of treatment. Actually, that is a good thing. Um, transition of care. Does it tend to be, cause I know you guys probably don't have access to EMRs usually. No. Nah. Tend to be like verbal, written. Um, both. Makes sense. I would say written is the most important, but the written is more for record keeping than for transfer of care. It's mostly verbal and it's mostly they just take what they want to hear and then do what they want. Right. You know, but they'll very often at the hospital, they'll do their own evaluation. Okay. Yeah. Obviously, in an emergency, you know, you call them up when you're 10 minutes out and say, hey, we're coming in with this scenario, clear a room, and they'll be waiting, ready to jump in. But for most cases, you know, most people you take to the ER, they 
ask you to to take him, you know, stick him in a wheelchair and wheel him around to triage where they would have gone if they had driven themselves. Right. Which I've definitely seen that because I I do volunteer in a hospital currently, and so um, sometimes I'm in the ER area because there are extra machines there for you know trauma reasons. And I've definitely had EMTs ask me like, "Where is this thing?" Because they don't work at the hospital and they might not. Oh, yeah. To this Getting hospital to hospitals is really challenging. Yeah. Not intuitive. So they'll, you know, if they're in the main ER, but um, I know, for example, the psych ER is um, in a slightly different location. So they might not be able to find that or they might be looking for, they might be doing transport, I think, between hospitals or to a nursing home. And so then they're like, where is this thing that is not actually in the ER? Do you, like, there are different levels of EMT training, right? Yes. So, um, overall, uh, uniformly across the country, you have EMT basics and paramedics. Okay. Which... In the process of simplifying this whole thing, they're just called, some places they're just called EMTs and paramedics. Okay. EMT requires, you know, a 120-hour course or something similar to that. A paramedic requires two years of training as well as college credits. Okay. Uh, So it's far more intense. It also allows the use of you know, about 40 different medications and more advanced procedures. Okay, whereas EMTs can only administer a couple, like, emergent... Yeah, like EpiPens or oxygen. Okay. Uh, and even that varies state to state. Okay. Yeah, you know, whereas paramedics can provide, you know, for example, morphine or... uh Let's see, in some states, EMTs can administer nitroglycerin, and some they can't um, for for heart conditions. Okay. Um, you know, paramedics can administer a few different heart medications. Um, they can also start IVs, which EMTs cannot do in most states, uh, or intubate a patient. And then each state kind of has its own definition of what exists in between EMT and paramedic. Okay. And that's over time, that's sort of being phased out to leave you with either EMT or paramedic, but there are some states that have EMT intermediate or EMT advanced, which, uh, you know, or in Rhode Island, it's EMT cardiac, which is anywhere from one end to the other with what they can do in Rhode Island, the EMT cardiac can do um, about 80% of what a paramedic can do, including IVs, intubations, and um, most of the drugs offered uh, for minimally more training, minimally more training. Uh, You know, in some States in, in EMT in advanced EMT can maybe start an IV, but not administer any drugs through it so that they could potentially be a really great support person for a paramedic. Okay. So the paramedic can make the decisions, can go into the drug box, get what they need to do and determine dosage while the EMT, you know, the advanced EMT has now set up the IV. So they're, you know, ready to do it. Cool. 
guess I think that's all of my questions. Do you have anything you want to add? No. Being <laughs> is awesome. Everyone should do it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> really fun. Yeah. I, it's so weird because, um, I mean, I, I know both through you and through a lot of people we both knew in college, um, like a number of EMTs, a lot came from a, like, I want to be a doctor or pre-med background, but yep. my sister became an EMT because she was a lifeguard. And Oh yeah. It's a very, very small step from lifeguard to EMT. Right. So she was a lifeguard. So she was working at a Boy Scout camp and the paramedic at the Boy Scout camp was like, Hey, technically we don't need a paramedic and this would allow me to take vacation if you got EMT basic certified um, for next year. And so she did. It's like you get a pay raise and you can always find, you know, easy to pick up temp work if you make vacations. And so she was like, yeah, sure. So, yeah, she became an EMT. Um, Yeah, it sounds like there's a couple different paths to it. Right. Well, thanks so much. Anytime. Yeah. So happy to help. Yeah, good talking to you. Good to see you.